Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello, guys and girls. The program you are about to hear will be both fun and educational, but it is not a substitute for medical advice. Although we are doctors, we are not your doctors. Hello and welcome to Travel Medicine. As always, I'm your friendly neighborhood internal medicine doc, Dr. J. Hello. <laughs> no, I can't do it. Oh, it's an after dark episode. <laughs> it is, but after dark for right now because of whatever not daylight savings time and everything means it's somewhere about 4 p.m. <laughs> Dash. It's so dark, so goddamn early. Anyway, happy uh, winter, everybody. <laughs> this is uh, Santosh, your pediatric infectious disease doc and researcher. A pleasure to be with you this early, early, early evening. Santosh, mm. uh, in case our listeners haven't already figured it out, that means it's an alternate week. Maybe it's time for everyone's favorite bi-weekly segment. That's right. Time for another journal club. Yay! I've decided I'm giving up on titling journal clubs pandemic updates because, let's face it, they're all going to be pandemic updates in some form or another. (laughs) There is, until the pandemic becomes not newsworthy, which is somewhere about 2022, I think, Josh. So we're just going to keep mixing stories you know, that are a little pandemic, a little not. Let's start off with the pandemic stuff. Get that out of the way, because there's two I think are really important to cover. And the first, I'm going to jump the line because it's so much fun to say. And that is (laughs) the FDA has authorized uh, a new monoclonal antibody treatment. So it's been given emergency authorization for use by Eli Lilly. Mm-hmm. Do you know what the name of this drug is? 
I, I've. Uh, uh, do Do you want me to give the real one first? Yeah, give the real name, and then then okay. the audience knows what's going to happen after. <laughs> All right. So the proper pronunciation is it, Bam Lanivab. Oh, sorry, Bam Lanivimab. Bam oh, Black Betty. <laughs> Bam la never man, whoa, Black Betty. Bam the man of F. Black Betty had a virus. Bam the man of F. Damn thing, God inside us. Bam la never man. <laughs> it look, fits look. so well. It fits perfectly, Josh. Like, I, <laughs> I know we give scientists a really hard time for being shitty at naming things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Absolutely. rightfully so. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah, yeah. But this announcement brought some much needed joy to my life because there's so many different songs that this antibody can fit into and we're not even talking about the medical stuff yet. I'm just like although side effects of bamlanivimab may include yeah. uh ramalama dingdongs. <laughs> bump shabump shabumps. Uh-huh. uh-huh. And dip to dip to hips. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there there is a decent possibility that you could go straight into grease lightning <laughs> <laughs> and that would make me blue daba dee daba die i know i know for a fact that some wonderful chemist some biochemist was looking in there and he was listening to like 60s shoebop music at the time and he just couldn't help himself there's no way this there's no other way because for this to actually like if someone came up to me and said oh no no it actually fits because you know it's an inhibitor of bed no 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 the dude was in the back room doing the twist <laughs> his supervisor came in and he says hey steve what's the name of the, your new monoclonal antibody and from inside with his headphones connected to his 1980s walkman josh with the tape cassette he shouted out bam lan ivamab <laughs> bam lan ivamab bang a dang diggy 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 sing the boogie say up jump the boogie yeah and then the supervisor said i'm just gonna take the first part of that and that'll be the name <laughs> just the just the first five syllables it'll be fine <laughs> all right all right all right that's that's all I got for the moment, but I assure you <laughs> for the moment. <laughs> but I assure you we're coming back to it. Now that I've gotten it out of my system, however. Mm. Oh yeah. Can we actually talk about what it does or do we just need to stop right there? Whoa, whoa, Black Betty. Bam, okay, all right, all right, I'm done. I swear. No, I just, I, I mean, if we want to give the people information, we can at this point. <laughs> all right, so let's talk about this monoclonal antibody, which is just three letters off being a palindrome. Now that I've had all the fun I cared to with this story, why don't you get into the real science of it and talk about how it got its emergency authorization, why, and how it works? First of all, I'm really, really excited because. This is not for severe infection. It actually is for mild to moderate infection. So we finally have something that we can give to people 
before they get into the hospital. Um, the other great thing about it is that this is open to the pediatric population because rather than running the safety and kinetics for this monoclonal antibody, they used weight as a cutoff. So children who are as big as 40 kilograms or about 80 pounds are able to receive this. And essentially right now it is under EUA, which is called emergency use authorization. And you select out a person who has COVID confirmed or at least highly, highly probable. And then you can give them this antibody to prevent progression to severe disease and progression to hospitalization. So this isn't to be given, you know, after Josh, the, the other treatments that we have right now, remdesivir and dexamethasone, where you're eight, nine, 10 days out, and then you have to give this to them to kind of bring them back from the brink when they're headed towards being put on a ventilator, or they're already on a ventilator and they're getting worse. This is really a monoclonal antibody against that spike protein that actually sinks into the ACE receptor, right? The, the that That's the receptor that the COVID virus, the SARS-CoV-2 uses to actually wedge its way into a cell. So this monoclonal antibody is injected in and it has avidity, it has high avidity to that specific spike. So while there is active infection going on and it's mounting, you just stop the virus from being able to enter the cell by just, you know, sticking an antibody on there. Now, the cool thing about it is if then your immune system recognizes the FC portion, the constant portion of the monoclonal antibody, then it says, oh, this is something that I should be destroying. And you start to engage your T cells and hopefully make more and more of your own antibody, which also then sticks to other spike proteins on other virions floating around in your bloodstream, in the respiratory tract, and you halt the infection in its tracks. This is something that would be given just like remdesivir in the hospital. It's not given in a doctor's office as an outpatient. You're not picking it up at the local Walmart. Weirdly enough, Josh, it's the opposite. It's not for people who are hospitalized. It's before you get sick. So let's look into the actual trial. So this was based on an interim analysis. from, And the reason it got this emergency authorization is they took a phase two randomized double-blind placebo-controlled trial in 465 non-hospitalized adults who all had mild to moderate symptoms. Of these patients, you know, they divide them up. 101 Dalmatians received the dose of Bamlanivimab. Yeah, yeah. okay. And 107 got a, a 2,800 milligram dose. And basically, they tested it at different levels to find out where you were going to find the first positive COVID test. And the pre-specified endpoint where they say, okay, this is a result where if we get it, we're going to stop. If we don't get it, we're going to say it didn't work, was a change in the viral load from baseline to day 11. So they looked at people over the 10 days. And as you said, Santosh, they were watching for progression of symptoms. Mm -hmm. And the most yeah. important evidence that this could be effective came from the predefined secondary endpoint, which was not the change in viral load, but looking at how many of those people who got it 
needed to be hospitalized or go to the emergency room within a month after being treated. And the risk dropped to only 3% of patients traded, treated with bamlanivimab on average had to be hospitalized within the next month compared to 10% of people in the placebo trial. The only thing I have to be uh, a little skeptical about really is that the control patients got shamalama ding dong. And I don't think... Well, you have to ask yourself when you're doing a trial like this, Santosh, is it worth it? And then work it. Let me bam, lam, <laughs> bam, bam, down, flip it, and reverse it. Bam, lam, bam, 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 That's what she was saying. Oh, my God. Missy Elliott was prophetic. <laughs> she was trying to tell us the whole time <laughs> that there was going to be a pandemic in 2020 when she wrote that song in 19... <laughs> <laughs> Josh. <laughs> oh my god. Okay. <laughs> okay. For real though, the control patients got saline. <laughs> they just got saline. Yeah. <laughs> you, didn't think I was so... re- you didn't think I was gonna fling that out at you that fast after yeah. all the others. It's so quick. <laughs> it would be so hilarious if we learned in 40 years that Missy Elliott was actually our modern day Nostradamus. <laughs> That's what she was saying the whole time. And people are deconstructing it the way they do. <laughs> Listening audience, folks oh at home, God. I don't ask for this often, but <laughs> if you could breathe. all... If you could all just at at us on Twitter and Facebook with your best Bamlan Ivamab song lyrics, <laughs> it would just make the next month so much better oh, for yeah. for Dr. Santosh and I. Yeah. And if you're lost, you can look and you will find me. Bamlan Ivamab. <laughs> We go together like Bamlan, if a map, shubidi, bop to bop. <laughs> Best friends forever. It's like Rem, like Rem, like Rem Desivir, Bamlan, if a map. Okay, seriously, though, seriously, though. <laughs> we had a pretty good drop from 10% of people in the placebo arm who needed to go to the ER or get hospitalized after a month out. Versus down to 3% of the people who got the Bamlan Ivimab. And by the way, Josh, that isn't wonderful. That's a pretty good odds ratio where, where you drop their progression by that much. But it's not down to where, you know, we'd love it to be, which is, you know, 1% or less than 1%. So this is, it's a good drug. It's a, it's a strong showing for this particular uh, medication. Um, now, I should say EUA means that <clears throat> there has to be a fact sheet that's given out. You have to have good clinical judgment before you can use it. You can't just fling it out there as a physician. And the other issue is it's still being studied while this is going on. So anything and everything that's under emergency use authorization is subject to extreme critique because it, it hasn't really been labeled yet you know, ready for 
mass distribution. So during this time, if we actually find out, you know what, we, the the data doesn't bear out the way it seems. We're we're still having a lot of hospitalizations or problems, or we get a side effect that we didn't anticipate. Um, then you know, at that point, it it can be cut off. So, um, but and this is what happens with another emergency use authorization drug early on in the pandemic: hydroxychloroquine. Mm-hmm, absolutely. Where, you know, it gave the emergency use, so we could start giving it in the hospital for this purpose. And as studies failed to bear out its its overall usefulness, we stopped using that and moved on to alternative therapies. Although I really hope this one works because I just like saying it. Yeah. <laughs> I just learned that remdesivir has a generic name, which is nowhere near as good. Vecluri. Oh, no, not a, not the generic, like the corporate name. Yeah, the yeah. corporate. There you go. Yeah, yeah, the the license name. Yeah, yeah, they're usually quite stupid. You know, the chemical names are awesome. We spent a lot of time having fun with that one, didn't we? Yeah, oh yeah. <laughs> and I will say, folks, I, I wish I could claim credit for that, but as soon as I had the thought of the, the Black Betty reference, apparently men of a certain age, mine, all over Twitter, came to this same conclusion within about, <laughs> oh, maybe 10 seconds. Yep. But let's move on to our next story. So in between this this monoclonal antibody to decrease the risk of progression of disease, Pfizer made a pretty impressive announcement about their vaccine efficacy data. I mean, from a corporate standpoint, it was massive. I mean, this just blew the top off of everything. And, you know, oh my gosh, look at what Pfizer did. Uh, but I am, Josh, I'm, I'm very kind of skeptical and careful about this because their claim was absolutely through the roof. And, so let's, let's break this down a little bit. So originally... Vaccine trials are set up to get a defined number of cases overall, at which point the various committees lock the doors, unblind the data, and look at how things are going. Who actually had a placebo? Pfizer was planning to take their first look once they hit 32 cases. However, they ended up dropping that, looking at it 32 cases in favor of a 62-case read. And by the time they actually got around to even opening up their planned 62-case read— because America still has uncontrolled COVID, the number of cases had reached 94, which means the statistical power was way higher than Pfizer even was planning on looking at before they decided what to do with all this data. Right. And to be sure, statistical power, the the way it's defined, is actually the ability to sense or see a smaller difference. So for instance, if something is powered to see, you know, like a a 90% difference between your control and your intervention, you're trying to find, you know, this, this huge, massive difference between things, you may not need as many people. But if you're trying to differentiate like a 5% difference, just a little bit of a change from the placebo to the intervention, then you need more and more and more subjects. So you need to actually power it higher. Before you kind of tell us the the less or the more skeptical side of this news, I will give a few of the, we'll play good cop, bad cop, Santosh. Right now, it's looking at, based on the data that they've seen so far, the vaccine looks as though it provides protection for about 
at least a year. That's good. Yeah, yeah. Oh, absolutely. That's, you know, because right now people who get sick from COVID, they seem to maintain their native antibodies for, I don't know, a few months. That's Maybe bad. Maybe four or five months. Yeah. <laughs> dork. All yeah, of it's bad. All of these different vaccines, the AstraZeneca, the Moderna, the Pfizer, are all targeting, by and large, the same coronavirus spike protein. So it's highly likely that even though they'll all roll out at different times, all of these different vaccines are going to work to differing degrees. That's good. It, it is. It's, you know, we have a, a very good idea of where to aim our antibody, something that's antigenic, meaning that it provokes an appropriate immune response, and uh, something that is very kind of constant, meaning it's not shifting or changing. So the virus can't kind of mutate its way out of, you know, this this particular little chokehold. And, you know, just to hook back to the last story, uh, the monoclonal antibody we just finished talking about does also target that spike protein. This particular vaccine by Pfizer is one of the most delicate of all the vaccines being developed. And when I say delicate, it needs to be stored super cold, negative 80 degrees Celsius storage, which is simply not available down at your local pharmacy unless it's December in Chicago. In which case, you know, I can throw it out on my balcony. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you need a you need a deep freeze. And by the way, every single research center that you go to will have a freezer like this at negative 80 or negative 70. And the reason for this, Josh, is this one, a lot like the Moderna vaccine, is not just a protein that has been attached to a vector or that's being, you know, injected as a, as a component for the body to attack. This is one of the very, very new first in class, uh, along with Moderna, mRNA vaccine. And what this means here is that you have a little piece of genetic code, RNA, not DNA, but RNA, that can be absorbed by a cell the cell can then take up that RNA and replicate as much of this spike protein as it needs to so that the body can recognize it and attack it. But whereas proteins are very stable, and a lot of the time you can keep them at like fridge temperature, like four degrees Celsius, or maybe at minus 20, which is a normal freezer that you would find like in, in your home or your grocery store. Uh, the, mRNA or messenger RNA is very unstable. It's extremely unstable. So if you don't keep it nice and cold until it's absolutely ready to be used, it'll literally just go off. It'll go bad before you can use it because the mRNA will break down and then the body won't be able to read it and you'll be just injecting inert lipid nanoparticles. And that's where this gets into a little bit more problems because population density really is going to play into distribution of this. You're going to get into regions where you're trying to send the vaccine, but high-tech storage and handling becomes far more difficult. You don't have the frozen trucks or the roads that can make it out far enough to some of these more rural or difficult to reach areas. You are not going to have the technology available to keep the vaccine for any significant length of time there, which means people out on the boondocks are going to have a real hard time getting this particular vaccine because it simply won't be stocked. It can't make it to those areas. 
Right. And in, in cases like these, you actually have to bring the people to the vaccine rather than trying to bring the vaccine out to the people. Extremely inefficient and difficult to do. And I think most importantly, there is a there's an equity issue, just like you're saying here, Josh, is that it's it, it will be unfairly distributed if we can't figure out the logistics because people who are in a rural area, you know, who are far out there where we can't bring out a minus 80 refrigerant truck, that means those folks, unless we make a concerted effort to get that vaccine out there, they're going to be literally left out in the cold. Um, and so this is something that we cannot do. When you are developing a vaccine and when you're distributing it to, distributing it to the people, a must, an absolute must is that it is equitable, that everybody who needs it can get a hold of it regardless of where they live, cost, race, you know, anything. You, we, we can't just make a vaccine because, oh, it works really well as long as, you know, you can get to it kind of thing. And I would assume that any emergency use authorization for this would therefore be directed at the highest need population. So we're not going to see a countrywide effort to vaccinate the whole population with this until probably late in 2021. Even, so even if we all magically got the vaccine this morning, we'd still have to wait at least a month to kind of see the safety data, and we're not all getting it this morning. That's for dang sure. We're still in phase kind of one, two, three of the Pfizer vaccine. The others, Moderna and AstraZeneca, uh, even Johnson & Johnson, they've moved to phase three testing. So Josh, I am still a bit worried this is a still a small number of people, but that efficacy of 90%, um, and I'm, I'm going to give everybody a, a math equation, so I'm sorry ahead of time, but vaccine effectiveness means you take the number of unvaccinated people or in the placebo arm minus the number of vaccinated people who get sick. Okay, so sick unvaccinated minus sick vaccinated, and then you divide that by the number of people who got sick who are unvaccinated. Multiply times 100, you have a percentage. That's the vaccine efficacy. Basically a measure of how much more protection do you get uh, when you have gotten the vaccine in terms of actually getting the, the in this case, the, the coronavirus. So that 90% is gorgeous. It is what we'd expect of a good vaccine. Um, Josh, measles, mumps, and rubella, actually the measles and rubella component, they're like 99% effective um, almost for a lifetime. So it is something that we do expect for a good vaccine. The light at the end of the tunnel is finally <laughs> visible. It is. It really is. And by the way, it, you know, they're making that spike protein. You've got great protection from it. And if the safety data bears out, that means that there's many multiple ways that you could show that spike protein to your host in order to induce immunity. So it very well could be that there's two or three vaccines out on the market by the time all is said and done, which is just fine. Let's move on to our next story. Mm -hmm. and get away from the pandemic for, yeah, for just, for a, just little a little bit. bit. Yeah, we'll move sideways to the upcoming <laughs> flu and cold season. Yeah, But let's involve some cute, adorable little animals. It's flu season, guys. 
please get your flu vaccines. You are at even greater risk this year from the flu if you happen to catch a flu, a cold, and COVID all at once. So, yeah. uh, by the way, we don't know how much worse it'll look. We just we're fairly sure it's not good. <laughs> So a new drug has been created that is forcing the flu virus into an error catastrophe, overwhelming it with mutations. Yeah. <laughs> that sounds like sci-fi. <laughs> right? Yeah. How you like that, viruses? Now we can induce mutations in you. Oh, doesn't feel so good being on the receiving end of those mutations. It's like magic. Abracabamlavamabab. <laughs> So, <laughs> all right, all right. A new yeah. drug that has shown promise in ferrets of all animals may help drive down that toll. And this is actually really, it's a great point. Ferrets actually have the type of immune response to influenza that we need in order to kind of, you know, properly model human infection. So it sounds really, really bizarre. But if you want to do flu research, you really have to go to the ferret as, a, as an animal model. So scientists at Georgia State University and Emory University investigated a compound named N-hydroxycytidine, NHC, which for years has been known to inhibit a lot of RNA viruses, of which the flu is one. Now, previously, NHC had been shown to be active against influenza, but in monkey tests, they found that the drug just really isn't taken up well by the body, which makes it a deal breaker for human use. After all, if it doesn't work on a monkey, why would it work on a human? <laughs> well, I think much more importantly, uh, because in this case, it's not that it's not working for a metabolic reason or something like this. In this particular case... It is because the, the bioavailability, the uptake is poor. So science and translational medicine wrote about this study, and the researchers tweaked this, this NHC structure to create a new compound named, honestly, it doesn't matter, which, because, <laughs> it converts, because it converts right back into NHC inside the body. So they kind yeah. of bypassed that metabolic problem. You didn't want to say you don't want to call it EIDD two eight zero one. Look, look, man, I've had all my fun with drug names today. <laughs> I'm I am still riding high on the Bamlan Ivabab train. Yeah, but this is the uh, polar opposite of fun. This is just a flat like series of numbers followed by a series of letters followed by a series of numbers. So it's, it's awful. <laughs> it's so bad. So they tested uh. this new drug in ferrets, which, as you mentioned earlier, Santosh, is the most widely used animal model for influenza. And interestingly, if ferrets received the compound 12 hours after infection, they didn't develop disease at all. Zero, zilch, zip, nada. Those yeah. that received it 24 hours after infection, once they'd already started getting fevers, still produce less virus than animals that received Tamiflu, which is our current flu drug. And, and Tamiflu, by the way, is not beautiful. <laughs> it's, no, it's, it's, it's not a great drug. It's short, yeah. of course, by like two, three days, which yeah. if you're, you know, immunocompromised could be really important. But for the vast majority of the population, it's nice, doesn't do a ton, but still helpful. And the other issue, really, and, and the reason why this particular EIDD <laughs> compound is really, really important is because a 
flu virus and a strain of flu virus, or maybe the entire group of flu viruses per season can develop resistance to oseltamivir or to zanamivir or ranitidine. Whereas in this case, it seems to be next to impossible. Oh, <laughs> I'm still trying to think of other Bamlanivimab <laughs> songs. It's like every time you stop talking and I take over, you fade out into left field with your Bamlan Navy map. I totally do. All right, <laughs> all right, all right. <laughs> all right, come um, back here, come back here. Essentially, so people might have heard the little cytidine at the end of N hydroxycytidine in there. So cytidine is a nucleic acid, and this is a analog of this nucleic acid. So basically, you're inserting a weird-looking cousin of a nucleic acid while influenza is trying to build its genome to to, to make the next group of viruses and then burst open the cell and propagate. And then you add in the cytidine and it gra- th- this particular weird cytidine, this N-hydroxycytidine, and it just sucks up how the, the genetic code goes. And it's not able to build the virion because the, pr- the actual instructions to make its own protein to make the virus shell around it is screwed up. And then that's it. You know, you you kind of stop as a weird jumble of pseudonucleic acids, and you get ripped apart by the cell before you even have a chance to fully form. It's awesome. To test how easily it could become resistant, they also grew the virus persistently while keeping it exposed to sublethal doses. So they were trying to induce resistance of this drug. They tested it against slowly, uh, they tested it constantly against sublethal doses of NHC or slowly increasing concentration of NHC to purposefully reduce to purposefully induce resistance and even though sequencing of the virus at each of these stages shows that it's trying to develop resistance to the drug no resistance strains develop which is important because so far every other drug we've tried for the flu has eventually failed this test Right. And this makes sense, right? You you give a, a lower concentration of drug, you allow the virus to replicate, it should select out the viruses that have, you know, either an enzyme mutation or something like this, where this particular drug won't bind properly. And you go generation, 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 and you try to keep selecting out these resistant mutants by going low and slow on the amount of drug. And this guy just wouldn't budge, which is awesome. It's not just the pandemic that's still continuing to advance drug research. Even for common things like the flu, still dangerous, we are making advancements and constantly getting better every single day. Yeah, and I think this is... This is kind of a beautiful era, Josh, because the this is we're stepping into the era of virology, and that's exciting. There was a time when if you had a bacterial illness, that's it. You were toast. You had a, a certain type of pneumonia, or you had a bad cellulitis, or a urinary tract infection to a certain degree. There, you had a high chance of death. And there was this leap in knowledge that when we figured out penicillin and sulfa drugs that we could kill these, that we found a good strategy to try to attack 
these horrible bacteria that were trying to kill us. Now we had to have the same kind of leap in knowledge in virology in order to start attacking this new frontier. Uh, and it's an ancient frontier. It's old as hell. But our antibacterial strategies were not working at all when trying to develop drugs to counter viruses. So I'm so, so, so happy to see this playing out you know, in our lifetimes, like right in front of you and me. It's so great. It really does a lot to reduce my stress level. In between coming up with new Bam Lam Ivamab earworms. Yeah. Which brings us to a segue for our next story. Earworms, <laughs> stress, earwax may reveal how stressed you are. Yeah. <laughs> this was so damn sensationalistic. <laughs> I hated this headline so much. <laughs> it's such a good headline though you can't <laughs> like are you stressed check your earwax no that's not it's not all right all is. right for those of you the link will be well the link to the real paper will yeah, be yeah. in the show notes but i sent this to santosh earlier in the week yeah. scientists hail earwax test for checking stress hormone levels <laughs> and then immediately Researchers say cortisol sampling could transform diagnostics with people with depression. Much less sexy. Very important. Yeah, yeah. But, but much less sexy. It is. This is, yeah, because the second one actually tells you what they're looking for. <laughs> so it's a new method of collecting and analyzing earwax for cortisol. Now, cortisol is a hormone that spikes when a person is stressed and declines when they're relaxed. It's basically the fight or flight uh, the fight or flight hormone, but we've noticed that it's often consistently elevated in people with depression and anxiety and people who have long-term elevated cortisol can actually end up having immunosuppression as well as negative effects on blood pressure and other bodily functions. Uh, this is not even to involve things like Cushing's disease, which is an overproduction of cortisol or Addison's disease, which is a severe underproduction of cortisol. So cortisol has a lot of different effects in the body. So knowing what your levels are is part of any good diagnostic workup for somebody approaching a doctor with an endocrine problem. Yeah. And I think, Josh, this is one of these things where you and I learned different things from kind of before medical school to medical school to residency, where there was this idea first of, oh, oh when you get depressed, you know, your immune system can go down. And then for a little while, we were like, oh, no, that's silly. You know, it's, it's, they're, they're not connected to each other. Then we learned again, oh, there's a very intimate connection between fluctuations in your endocrine system and your immune and inflammatory pathways. And now that knowledge is solidifying. So if people are confused about, you know, is this real? Is this not real? Right now in this era of data, uh, when we are recording this, the the current link seems to be very strong that when you have depression and certain neuroendocrine axes are thrown off, such as that with glucocorticoids, that you certainly do depress T-cell function, 
you depress immunoglobulin production, not to a crazy amount, but enough to where you certainly have a higher chance of getting sick, especially from routine things like colds and flus. So seeing someone who's depressed who gets sick often is not surprising. There's a lot of ways that we normally have to measure cortisol, saliva, blood, hair. But here's the problem. Saliva and blood samples normally only capture a moment in time, and the tricky thing about cortisol, as with many hormones, is it fluctuates significantly throughout the day. So when you measure can determine what your diagnosis may be. Even the experience of just getting a needle stick to draw blood can increase stress and therefore the same cortisol levels you're trying to measure. It's the ultimate, you know, the observed, the observer effect. So instead... Andres Hirane Vivas, a lecturer at University College London's Institute of Cognitive Neuroscience and Institute of Psychiatry for kids who can't read well and want to learn to measure cortisol no, no, well, no. too. Come on. <laughs> no, All right, no. Derek. Um, <laughs> it's merman. But previous methods of harvesting earwax for any reason, usually involved sticking a syringe into the ear and flushing it out with water, which is, you know, a little bit stressful. So yeah, it's, yeah. yeah, it's uh, it's mean is what it is. It can cause vertigo and make people throw up. It is, It can actually be very, very disturbing. So instead, Hirane Vivas and his colleagues developed a swab that when used is no more stressful than a Q-tip. Now, brief aside, stop using Q-tips, people. Yeah, <laughs> please don't. Please do not insert Q-tips into the ear canal. Yes, you have some earwax. Yes, that earwax is supposed to be there. Don't, don't use the I am I am utterly serious about this. Like, you really shouldn't be using a Q-tip. And if you continue to, I'm going to come out there and it'll be bam, lamb, Ivamab, right in the kisser. Uh, but they did develop this, this Q-tip that the swab has a shield around the handle. So it's basically a little ear sword. So people can't stick it too far into their ear and damage their eardrum and a little sponge or shovel at the end to collect the wax. This is adorable. It's an ear shovel. It it is that guard that little uh, you know tip on the end which has a it has a, a flared base <laughs> so you can't go any higher into the ear canal. Uh, it it was really important and then using a soft collection a sponge at the end. So they actually made a copyright. They they did a copyright in 2020 with this little device uh trears limited t-r-e-a-r-s trears and they they were able to patent it i don't know coming to a walgreens near you <laughs> possibly well let's talk about why this is even important they found they compared earwax cortisol with saliva cortisol blood cortisol hair cortisol all the different methods just to look for reliability and they found that in general cortisol was way more concentrated in earwax than in hair which made it easier to analyze and collect um, it was also faster and more efficient than analyzing earwax from a syringe which had to be dried out before using and it was consistent not only against the other methods of measuring but even consistent against itself which so it's a little bit less sensitive to fluctuation caused by things like recent alcohol consumption or the fear of seeing a needle or a syringe full of water coming at you. <laughs> now, yeah. Uh, oh yeah, go ahead, go ahead. I was going to say the one really, really interesting thing about this, I thought, is 
here's one of these few tests where your race really does play into how effective this test may be for you because the researchers are conducting follow-up studies with Asian individuals who are left out of the pilot study because this was news to me. A significant number of Asians only produce dry, flaky earwax as opposed to Anglican wet, waxy earwax. <laughs> I absolutely love this. <laughs> so, I mean, it makes sense, right? Because melanin content and kind of skin composition, including the, you know, the wax glands in your ears probably do change due to ancestry and ethnicity. So that's really fascinating. So it, it may not be a thing of uh, race the way that we think about it as, you know, are they Sinetic or are they Caucasian, but it really has more to do with ancestry. And Josh, this may be something akin to how different people evolved growing up over generations in different types of environments with respect to things like humidity and altitude and temperature. So that might be a really good reason why, you know, the some people of certain nationalities had earwax that was protective against like cold, dry climates versus like wetter, warmer, tropical climates or something like that. Uh, I'm not being precise about that, but that's, that's really, really cool. Like in and of itself, that's a neat like Ancestry.com thing. Well, it doesn't even have to be an Ancestry.com because there was a study that if you describe yourself as Caucasian or African American, your earwax is probably yellow and waxy or sticky. If you're East Asian or Native American, it's more likely to be dry and white. And for yeah. those of us with the yellow kind, our earwax is stinks. It's it's just smellier. It gave yeah. off stronger <laughs> odors. Sure. Okay. So there's a few researchers. Now this is a study that actually dates back to around uh, 2014. But I did run across it while reading about this other earwax stress study. So <laughs> basically, you could obtain information about a person's ethnicity simply by looking in their ears, as opposed to, you know, looking at them with your eyes. Yeah. But the team was inspired to see that the same gene controls a person's underarm odor and the type of earwax they make. That's how Ooh. the study started in Philadelphia. Ultimately... These researchers hope to mine our ears for whatever health secrets they hold yeah. <laughs> as a neglected body secretion. It's This is so great. And it makes a ton of sense, too, because a lot like when we discovered hemoglobin A1C, Josh, for, you know, the fact that why should red cells be connected to sugar? Oh, it looks like sugar conjugates onto hemoglobin in a, in a particular way. And the percent of your hemoglobin that is circulating around, as long as you haven't had a drastic shift, right? You haven't had a hemorrhage or a transfusion. You can track that over a long period of time, three months, in fact, that's the average life of a red cell, to say where your sugar has been you know, over the course of those three months. This is the same kind of thing. As long as you don't Q-tip your ear out, all right. You've got a secretion where cortisol is kind of stored up as it is slowly, slowly, you know, leached out uh, along with the wax. And then it just hangs out. It just it stays there. 
So this is another reason why if you want to help your doctor, you know, try to try to help you and say, oh, am I depressed? Am I not? Somewhere in the future, you can't be using a Q-tip. Right. So we started, we, we went a long way with this study. We started just by measuring cortisol and then found out that cortisol levels, which can help diagnose depression, which would be great if we actually had a definitive biological test we could do. You know, right now, depression is made basically from history. There's not, there isn't a simple blood test that we can point to and say, oh, you haven't been feeling well. Are you sad? Are you this? Let's take a blood sample. Oh, came back positive for depression. But this earwax test may ultimately lead to a diagnostic objective measure that can help to quantify that. And this is important because earwax can already give a heads up to two different odor-causing diseases before they can be detected in blood or urine. And this is just a fun aside. Maple syrup urine disease, mm-hmm. which makes urine smell delicious, but is actually dangerous <laughs> and deadly. And yeah, that's, that's an amino acid disorder. <laughs> and alcaptonuria, or black urine disease, also can be detected from earwax before it shows up in blood or urine. So the ear really is this untapped mind, and we should spend more time listening to it. Oh. Womp womp. (laughs) You got me. You got me. Yeah, you got me. For our final study of the week, (laughs) let's talk about akinetic mutism and sleeping pills, and a patient who could not move or talk spontaneously for eight years. So basically almost a locked in, not quite a coma, but a locked in style syndrome started to do so again after being administered a sleeping pill. And this spectacular but temporary effect was visualized with brain scans, which allowed researchers from Amsterdam and Radboud University Medical Center a better understanding of this disorder underlying process. So I found it because a friend sent it to me for the phrase overactive brain researchers, which makes them just sound like a lot of scientists running around going, oh, my God, what are we going to do? Bam, 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 bam. And it depends on where you put like the stop, right? So you could say overactive brain researchers or are they overactive brain researchers? <laughs> you said two completely different groups of people. <laughs> I love it. Uh, so let's get into the story now. This is a very specific, small group of people. This is not something that's going to have mass applications to people in comas of all kinds or all kinds of lock syndromes. But most patients with serious brain injuries can temporarily talk, walk, and recognize family members. But a patient who couldn't do it. So eight years ago, A man in his late 20s was hospitalized after a hypoxic brain injury. He survived, but he wasn't able to talk, eat independently, or move spontaneously. And it was clear that he saw and heard the people around him, but he couldn't respond. And this condition can be known as akinetic or non-moving mutism. You're not speaking. But there is a very small chance that patients with this condition will temporarily recover after giving them a sleeping pill. Now, the interesting thing is why. It's because what happens is in most of these people, your brain is so overactive, hence our overactive brain researchers, that overactivity in certain parts of the brain causes noise and interferes with the normal brain activity. 
by essentially giving somebody a sleeping pill, you suppress all the brain overactivity, creating space for speech and movement for the duration of the drug. So it doesn't have a lot of widespread application right now, but they're studying the processes that lead to this and how to quiet down some parts of the brain while leaving others functional, similar to ways that, say, dolphins may use half of their brain asleep while they swim, or birds keep half of their brain kind of in a temporary rest while they're flying for long distances. It turns out humans may have some capability to do these things too, but not for any evolutionary adaptive purpose. And for us, it's more of a negative. If you have too much brain activity and whatever, only by intentionally forcing shutdowns can we regain some basic function. So there's not a ton about this. I will link to the paper. It's really interesting from a neurological standpoint, and I'm not quite sure where they're going to go with it yet. So, you know, developing story, and we'll see where it goes from here. Yeah, we we have a ways to go before... A, this particular disorder is rare, right? So it's it's hard to test what works versus who gets better spontaneously, even if they wouldn't have been treated. Uh, but the neat thing is exactly what you said, Josh, is that e- even if we learn a little bit from this particular interaction with Zolpidem and this particular disorder, it may give us a wealth of knowledge about you know, this activation or deactivation of the brain as a whole, we might even get a little bit of cool insight on this whole big question of like, what is consciousness? Yeah. So I felt that that alone was worth including in the journal club and gave us a chance to kind of cool down after that that fun opening where <laughs> I'm going to be thinking, and, and I mean it, folks, send me all your Bamlan Ivamab parodies <laughs> and jokes. I want to hear every last one of them. And oh, yeah. that is it for this week. As always, we love to hear your comments, questions, and feedback. If you'd like to support us spiritually, emotionally, or financially, links to do that are in the show notes or on our Patreon. This show is produced by me with a lot of help from Dr. Santosh and friends. Our theme music is composed by Rachel Leisure. And as always, until next time, wash your hands, stay safe, wear a mask, and if you're able to, happy travels! Bye, everybody! catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row dreaming of something better well hello fresh is your guilt-free dream come true baby it's me geeky palmer let's wake up those taste buds with hot juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi Mm. hello fresh stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at hellofresh.com let's get this dinner party started 